Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. We left off last week with verse 12. We'll pick up today and we'll do 13 through 18 of Nehemiah chapter 8. In these first 12 verses of Nehemiah 8, we saw last week that the people of God got a taste of the law of God. They got a big helping of it. And they liked it. They loved it. It changed them. And they rejoiced. Look at verse 12 of Nehemiah 8, just to review last week. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. As we saw last week, In verses 9 through 11, they were bruised by the words that were proclaimed to them that they understood. They were bruised by them, wounded. In verses 9, 10, and 11, we see the words wept, mourned, and grieved. This as they encountered the Word of God. But but these very words that wounded them also brought healing. That's why we read in verse 12, there's great rejoicing. The Word of God is amazing because it wounds us when we read it, so long as we read it humbly. It wounds us because we understand that we're not living in accordance with what God has commanded often. Because of the message of mercy and grace and forgiveness and redemption, it also heals us. So we weep while we smile because we understand the truth of the gospel that we've sung about all morning, by the way. They rejoiced, yes, because they were wounded and they were healed. And look at this, it says they rejoiced because, there's the key word, they rejoiced because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They understood what David meant when he said, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. They, they lived that out, they understood that really, really well in that moment. Now, I want you to understand, as you look at this text, this this is not an emotional high for these people. This is not because of an effective, charismatic speaker that was riveting to listen to. No, these people had the book of the law read to them. And the text earlier in in chapter 8 says, from early morning to midday. Minimum three hours. Early morning might be 9 o'clock, but I think it means 6 a.m. to noon. Six hours, the Word of God is read to them. It's not a charismatic speaker. It's not because of stirring music. This is not an emotional high. They understood the words that were declared from the book of the law. We make music to it, and it's not wrong to be stirred by music, but I'm wanting to emphasize this morning, these people were stirred up because of the Word of God. They were not stirred up because of signs and wonders. There was not miracles being performed during this time. There's other times where God did use signs and wonders to uplift and uphold His Word so that people would believe His Word. That's not going on in this moment. It is Scripture alone that captures the people's hearts and reforms them. And they're happy about it. (laughs) They rejoiced. 
I want us to be a people that when we encounter the Word and we are reformed every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night and every other time that we encounter the Word, I want us to be a people that rejoice at the Scriptures alone. There's a time and place for all the others. But the Word has got to be this prevalent in our lives. And so Scripture alone is the emphasis of these texts and how the people are reformed and in being reformed they rejoice. Read with me verses 13 through 18. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Quote, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Close quote. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, people of Israel had not done so. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Bow with me and let's pray. Father, how I ask you in this moment, as I've served this text to us from you, You'd help me to lead us in worship and you would help us to worship you in response to this, your perfect holy word. Help us in these next few minutes, Father. Help us to understand booths and you and us and what we are to do with your word. I pray this desperately in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we open this text in verse 13, and we see men of God devoted to the Word of God. There's a newfound reverence for the Word of God amongst the people. It wasn't just an emotional high. This reverence for the Word of God had staying power amongst the people. They stayed fixed on this, and we see that men come together. Note who came together with the priests, the Levites, and Ezra in verse 13. It is the heads of fathers' houses of all the people. It's men. Men lead in God's kingdom. They lead their families. They lead their churches. And the men of God have gathered around the Levites, the priests, and Ezra the scribe. And the purpose that they gathered, look at it, in order to study the words of the law. Dangerous things happen, and I use danger in a good way. Bold things happen when the men of God study the word of God. You watch what happens in this text this morning. These men are reformed. 
They've been reformed to God's Word. They're revitalized. And they have a strong reverence for the Word of God. And they know just the guys to go to to say, let's study the law of God together. We've got to get this right. We've got to know God correctly. And so they are eager to study God's law so that they can know Him better and so that they can obey Him faithfully. There's a desire to be faithful. Thus they come to the Word of God. I want you to know this morning that this is good news for Judah. This is very good news for Judah. Because these men, these family fathers, they are the ones God has charged with teaching their children the law of God. Deuteronomy 6, 6. These words I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Good news, Jerusalem. Your men are studying the law of God and they're now going to be able to instruct the children about the God of the book. That's a good place to be. They haven't been here. You know, I look at this and I ask the question this morning of, the men of Rocky Point Baptist Church. Are we known as men who gather around the Word to study it so that we can do it and only then so that we can teach it to those that God has entrusted to us? There's a model here for us men. It's vivid. It's very simple. This is how we need to be defined. Not just the Levites, not just the priests, not just Ezra, not just the elders, not just our Sunday school teachers. The men of Judah and the men of Rocky Point Baptist Church have got to come together around the Word of God to study it, to do it, so that they can teach it. We don't study the Word of God, we won't obey it, and we certainly can't teach it. And I'm here to tell you this morning that when the men of God come together to study and obey the Bible, families flourish and churches thrive. And Israel and Jerusalem will flourish and thrive because of what these men are doing in this moment. May that be true of us because of our male orientation to the Bible. What did they study in these words of the law? What did they see when they came together to do this? Verse 14, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. That's where they were in the word. That's what they studied. People of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Let's translate booths into modern day language. It's very simple. Tents. The people of God are supposed to camp, is what they've read in Deuteronomy. They're to camp in tents. So that begs me as the preacher of the morning to explain this tenting that God has called for. So I want you to keep your place right there in Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's go all the way back to the left to the book of Leviticus chapter 23. 
We need to see this command that God has given the people of Israel to live in booths or tents or tabernacles. Because it's a very, very important feature of the kingdom of God and His people. Leviticus chapter 23. Find your way to verse 39. Moses writes, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, which is exactly where we are back in Nehemiah 8.13, by the way. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest. On the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And we know him to be holy, holy, holy. The Feast of Booze was to remind them of God's faithfulness in the wilderness after the Exodus. It's a grand purpose here that God is installing this feast into the lives of His people. A thousand years earlier, God led them out of bondage in Egypt. And they went through the Red Sea on dry ground. And their destination is the promised land. Where one day there's going to be a city built named Jerusalem. That's going to need walls rebuilt around it. They passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They dwelt in the wilderness. Their lodging was tents. Which symbolized the temporary nature of their existence. They owned no land. They had no food source. They didn't have homes. They didn't have a water source. At one point they're getting water out of a rock that Moses speaks to and then strikes. These people are fragile and their existence is being demonstrated to them as fragile and temporary. They cannot set roots down with tents. All they had was God. All they had was the one who said, I am the Lord your God. And that is sufficient. There's some key features to this boothing, (laughs) this tenting that was happening. I'll give you three. We could go on and on, but I'll give you three. Number one, a key feature that cannot be missed in this is God dwelt amongst his people. This is really good news. Exodus 29. I want you to just listen to some of these Exodus passages. Exodus 29, 45. I, God speaking here, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So we've got a God that made these people, that called this nation Israel. 
And He is a God who dwells amongst them. He's not a distant God. He's very present in a time of need. Secondly, we see that as the people dwelt in tents, God dwelt in a tent. This is an amazing God, isn't it? God lived in a tent. Exodus 33, 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door. And they would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Fascinating. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, listen to this name, Joshua son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. The kingdom of God exists in tents in the wilderness. And even God himself dwells in a tent. It's called the tabernacle. And the people, when they see God entering into the tent with Moses, they stand at their tent doors. And the people of God and the kingdom of God are tenting, camping in the wilderness. Remember, we're doing this in the context of God calling them to remember this event at the Feast of Tents. So when the people saw the glory of God in the pillar of the cloud at the entrance of the tent, they stood at their tents and they worshipped. They beheld the presence and the glory of God in a tent. Thirdly, we saw that he dwelt amongst them. He dwelt in a tent and we see that he traveled with the people lodging in tents as they made their way to the promised land. And you know this story well. Exodus forty thirty six gives us a taste of it. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. And that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire at night would travel. And wherever it stopped, God's tabernacle was reestablished. And all the people reset their tent pegs. And they camped for a while until God deemed it appropriate to move on again. The Feast of Booths is to remind the Israelites of this scenario in their history. Why the Feast of Booths? Back in your text in Nehemiah chapter, I'm sorry, back over in Leviticus chapter 23, look at verse 42. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. And then look at verse 43. That... Circle that word. There's your key word. There's the purpose word. So that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in tents when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. There's the purpose for the feast. I want your generations after you to remember 
my deliverance of my people and that I used tents to do it. That's the purpose for the Feast of Booths. God required a physical and visual experience of tent dwelling as a means of remembering what He did for them. Because we need visual and physical sometimes, or we're going to forget. And He knows this of us. And so He went to an extreme degree and said, for seven days every year, for all generations... I need my people to get out of their houses and live in tents made of tree branches. (laughs) They're to remember the first exodus from Egyptian bondage. That's worth remembering, Israel. And so this was to be a week of worship and remembering His faithfulness from long ago. Okay, so that's what's going on with the Feast of Booths. We've got these men that huddle around the Word with Ezra and the priests and the Levites. They study the Word, and they're at this point in the Word when they learn about the Feast of Booths. And I'm going to give you three things that happen as a result of their Bible study. They are this. The Word of God brings conviction. The Word of God brings correction. And the Word of God brings rejoicing. I'll go through these quickly. First of all, the Word of God brings conviction. These men and their devotion to the law of God led to a major conviction in the life of the people of Israel. Upon turning to the Scriptures, they discovered a great sin in the life of their whole congregation. A massive omission of sin. Sin of omission. Look in verse 14. We're back in Nehemiah chapter 8. We'll stay there the rest of the way. In Nehemiah 8, 14, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Okay, great. Skip down to verse 17. Last part of 17. From the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. Oh. They go to the Word of God and they are convicted of a sin of omission that they have committed for generations. They have not kept the Feast of Booths as God commanded in the law. For generations they had not been worshiping God rightly as it relates to the Feast of Booths. Let me say that again. They had not been worshiping rightly. Is it a good thing to not worship God in the right way? No. This sin of omission, this disobedience to the commands of God was one of many reasons of why they were exiled into Babylon for 70 years. Generations had not been doing this. The text there in verse 17 says they had not done this from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun. That's Joshua also, the son of Nun. And Joshua lived in the 1400 era B.C. at the Exodus. He's the young man that remained in the tent when Noah Moses came out of the tent. That's a thousand years ago. Precisely, maybe about 950 So for 950 years, the people of Israel have not kept this command on the Feast of Booths. That's about 15, 18 generations 
And the people suffered for it. There's a feast of booze that happens back in Ezra chapter 3. I, you probably didn't re- remember that. But I looked at that this week with a partner in ministry and said, huh, this says they didn't keep the feast of booze from, from the days of Joshua till now. That's a thousand years. Yet in Ezra 3, they kept the feast of booze. Do we have a, an error in Scripture? Did Ezra write it and Nehemiah write it and we got it? No. No, as I pressed into this, this is my opinion. I don't even know that you can go look this up because I haven't found it written anywhere. When when I look at the Feast of Booze in Ezra chapter 3, it seems to me that they celebrated the Feast of Booths. They did the feast part. But they didn't build the tent part. They kept the Feast of Booze and all the food offerings and all of that that is entailed in those seven days. But you see no evidence over there that they built tents. And then I look right here in in Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 14, 15, 16 right in there. And the whole emphasis is on going out and getting branches. There's no talk of food at all. There's no talk of offerings at all. There's talk about going and getting leafy branches. Branches of the willow of the brook. Olive branches. Wild olive branches. That's all we get. And so I surmise that the people of Israel had kept the feast of booths, but they hadn't kept the feast of booths. And God wanted His people living in tents for a week. Because it's in that that they get the most vivid memory of what He did for them. And then they get the most authentic worship of Him as holy, holy, holy. And the Lord their God who delivers them from bondage in Egypt. So the Word of God as studied by these men, brings conviction that these men and the people of Israel for generations have not obeyed God's command in the Feast of Booths. And then the Word of God, secondly, brings correction. That's what verses 14 through 17 are all about. I won't read it again, but they go out and they get all these branches and they bring them back into town. And I just want you to picture this scene. They, they've got two weeks to go before the feast is to begin. On the 15th day of the seventh month. This is the second day of that month. They've got two weeks. And they are to go out. They are to proclaim and publish. In all of the towns and in all of Jerusalem. They are to proclaim and publish. The feast of booths is at hand. Let's get ready. We're going to remember God and we're going to worship God rightly. And so they proclaim this truth throughout all the land. The people are going into the hills. They're gathering tree branches of all kinds and they're bringing them on their backs and on carts and on animals back into Jerusalem. They're assembling these branches together into tents. Some of these tents are on the rooftops of flat-roofed houses. Some of these tents are in the courtyards of the tabernacle, of the temple. Some of these are in the streets. Some of these are at the city gates. Everywhere, Jerusalem has become a tent village. And people have left their residences 
And there weren't very many, we know, from previous passages. They left their homes, whether out in the country villages or in Jerusalem itself, and they're living under boughs of tree branches for a week. That seems crazy. And God sometimes requires the extreme to get our attention and to get us out of the same old, same old. They moved out of their homes and they lived in these tents or booths for seven days. So they've been corrected. They did this. And so now, thirdly, the Word of God brings joy. There was very great rejoicing, verse 17 says. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God and they kept the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. They are now living out the word of God. And from this, we learn that Bible hearing and Bible understanding and Bible application results in great rejoicing. It's good for people to hear the word of God to understand the Word of God, and to apply it to their lives and do the Word of God. And when all of that happens, people rejoice. We need to learn from this. and We need to come to this Word with that devotion and intent every single time and extremely frequently. They heard and understood the law of God and they applied it to their life and therefore there's great rejoicing. So that's what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. What, that, what might that mean for us today? Well, there's another occasion when God dwelt with His people. 400 and... 45, 450 years later, God dwelt amongst His people again. Matthew 1, 23, the, the Apostle Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, <laughs> and they shall call His name Emmanuel. And then Matthew says in parentheses, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He's God in the flesh. And He dwelt among us. We know John 1 very well, don't we? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, I get, I've got to give you some technical teaching for just a moment. We've got to talk about some Greek. I don't do this often. But when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, circle that word dwelt in your text. For the Greek word behind that English word of dwelt 
means to live, to take up residence, to encamp, to pitch a tent. In its noun form, it means a tent, a tabernacle, or a covered place. And God says through the Apostle John, the Word became flesh and tented among us. <laughs> Praise God for Jesus Christ and the Feast of Booths. God is dwelling amongst His people in the form of God the Son, Jesus Christ. He's tented among us. He's tabernacled with us. And just like those people that stood at their tents, and our body is a tent, by the way, a very temporary thing. When we stand at our tents and we behold the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we're standing at our tents looking at God in a tent as He came to dwell among us. And when we do that, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament saw that pillar of cloud come down on that tent, we here in John 14, we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. We're looking at the pillar of cloud that the Israelites saw in the Old Testament. What a great, magnificent God. And God wants us today to remember both of these booths. We need to remember that God was faithful to Israel and delivered them from the booths of delivered them from the bondage of in Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness where they lived in tents. And in the same way God has delivered us from the bondage of sin and death by tenting among us in Jesus Christ God the Son. And we look back to the cross and the empty tomb as a way of remembering, just like these Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 8 were to look back to the tenting in the wilderness a thousand years earlier. So God today still requires a visual experience for us as a means of remembering His deliverance. Old Testament, it was booths. New Testament, it's a crucified Christ and a resurrected Jesus we remember our exodus from the bondage of sin led by Jesus Christ in the act of baptism. When we get in the water, as we did last week, we are remembering what Jesus Christ did for us in a tent, a body. He knew no sin, yet He died in our place. We've sinned, He hasn't. He was buried and He was resurrected on the third day. Baptism, every time we do this, causes us to remember what God did when He took on a tent of flesh and dwelt among us. When we come to the Lord's table, the second ordinance that we recognize in the Protestant church, we remember the exodus that Jesus Christ led us out of as He died on a cross. And broke his body and shed his blood for us. In fact, Jesus himself says, do this in remembrance of me. God has told the Israelites, remember me by boothing for seven days. And he tells us today, remember me by coming to the table. Remember me by being baptized. By being immersed. 
as Jesus was, signifying his death, his full burial, and his bodily resurrection. Remember. It's the same concept that the Israelites were dealing with long ago. God says in Leviticus 23, 43, I want you to do this booth thing that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I led them out of bondage. And the Apostle Paul was instructed by Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. You proclaim, you publish that Jesus Christ took on flesh and tinted among us so that He could die and rise again. And you do this until He comes again. And I'll finish with this. In the future, Jesus Christ, God the Son, will tent among us again for all of eternity. In Revelation 21, 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. You hear the tenting again? And it's the same word, skene, dwelling place, as we get in John. Behold, the tent of God is with man. He will tent with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And it goes on to say, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for their former things have passed away. In other words, there will be great rejoicing. And that hardship in Egypt, and that hardship and bondage to sin will be no more. And that wilderness journey in that temporary tent where we owned no land and we had no source of food or water, it'll be a distant past. Because God, once again, for all of eternity, will tent amongst His people. This Feast of Booths is intertwined throughout all of Scripture and all of history. And we'll be in a Feast of Booths for eternity, as Revelation 21 tells us. So this morning, I urge you to consider the truth that God delivers fallen sinful men from bondage, whether it be Egypt or sin, by living amongst us in the form of Jesus Christ who died and rose again in our place so that we might have eternal life and a permanent and lasting home and a promised land greater than anything that's in the Middle East. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would receive what has been proclaimed. I ask that you, as you have known the minds and hearts of the people who have heard this and their response to your proclaimed word, I pray that as it is right and true to Scripture, you would receive it as our best worship. You've given us texts like this to drive us to worship you, God. We've not done this to exercise our minds and expand our knowledge of facts, but to Exercise our minds and hearts, and yes, to expand our minds of understanding you 
so that we can worship you rightly, so that we can worship rightly in a way that the world looks on to us and, and says, what a great God these people have. I pray, Father, that that's the result of this modest, simple offering of preaching this morning. And I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who tented amongst us and one day will tent amongst us again. Amen.